0: Hey this is Lexi. This is Ari
1: and you're listening to Hotel Earth.
0: Hi, we'd like to extend our stay and upgrade. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Hotel Earth. My name is Ariana Halvai, and I'm joined here by not only my co-host, but a very special guest today. We're very excited to have on, and it's definitely a topic that we have name-dropped many times, so we're excited to be discussing it today. My co-host's name is Lexi (laughs) Moorhead. There's a lot of wonderful (laughs) adjectives that I could use to describe her, but let's save ourselves some time. She's pretty awesome. (laughs) And we are joined here also by a very fun guest. Lexi, would you like to do the honors? I would. Today we have Miss Monica Ross on the podcast,
1: which I feel is long overdue, Nikki as she goes by, and I have known each other for like going on two years now, it feels a lot longer, but we actually met at work at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, started as colleagues and then very quickly trauma bonded and now we're best of friends. (laughs)
0: Trauma bonded. Wow. That's no like shade throwing or anything.
2: It was a stressful time. But
1: Nikki, if you could be so kind as to give us your title, maybe your certifications and degrees, just so maybe our audience can get a vibe of what your background is. My name's Nikki, as you introduced me as.
2: I am an environmental scientist. I work for state regulations. I've worked for DEP. I now work for a different state agency, uh, kind of doing similar things. I review and delineate wetlands uh, for environmental resource permits that, you know, they want to put in, you know, a single family home or a commercial industrial development. Uh, so I go out and I review those wetland limits and assess impacts and mitigation requirements if need be. So I have a certified wetland evaluator certificate, which honestly doesn't really mean much except for a uh, <laughs> that I can evaluate wetlands
0: as DEP requests. I see that as a pretty official stamp. Uh, right. it's.
2: I mean, there's better certificates that I will be striving for, like a professional wetland scientist, which is like more of like a national, maybe sure. international recognized certificates. But I also have I'm a stormwater inspector, that which I used for my last job, where I did compliance inspections on these big state permits and stuff uh, where I have to kind of mm-hmm. reviews, review like BMPs that are installed throughout construction, review Which turbidity. that stands
1: for best management practices for people that aren't in the business. Yes. Sorry. Environmental scientists really enjoy
2: our acronyms. I don't know why. We do. <laughs> we, do. we sure do. <laughs> acronyms for everything. And I have two bachelors. I have uh, one bachelor. Well, I guess technically they're both in biology. My first bachelor's isn't more focused in like the medical field because I thought I wanted to be a vet. And then my senior year came and I was like, medicine, ew, gross. And then I went (laughs) back and I got a
0: second bachelor's in biology. You are certainly not the (laughs) only person who's had this revelation. Yeah. Take it from me. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, but then my second bachelor's was focused in environmental science and ecology. Amazing.
2: And oh, now I'm getting a master's in uh, soil water sciences.
0: Now this is particularly. Yes. Interesting for us because today we're discussing specifically soil and soil remediation, Mm -hmm. which is a topic that I have just completely nerded out over the last year or so, realizing how important soil quality and taking care of our soil and the microbiome in soil is for not only things like like, um, erosion, agriculture, etc., but also just like carbon sequestration, and things like that, like very important processes um, that we do not really put on enough em- enough emphasis on when 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 we're talking about the climate crisis specifically. So we're very excited to to discuss this with you today.
1: Before we get too far into everything, Nikki, I have I have a question, and you can say no. Oh God! There's a particular story about you and your your current grad. Cohort, oh boy! That I'm curious to know if you'd be willing to share on the podcast. Yes, I will be
2: happy to share this story. It's super embarrassing. um, Oh no! But it's really funny and it's worth worth sharing. (laughs) So, oh gosh, maybe like I was only maybe a few months of working when I first transferred to the district office we worked at together, and I was out with one of our other coworkers, still really good friends, Emily on a site visit out in Pasco County. And, you know, I was trekking through like some pine flatwoods, wetlands, you know, like it had just rained. So it was like a foot of water everywhere. And I had my phone in my pocket. Cause I, you know, you have to take field with photos and, you know, things like, and also just like safety, having a phone on you in case something happens. And I get in the car and I take it out of my pocket just to like, I don't know, check the time or something. And I notice that it's like, first of all, it's open. And it's been in my pocket, so I don't know how it opened. And I had, like, five tabs open, and I had sent, like, random messages to uh, people on Instagram to, like, a Star Wars link on Disney, one of them being my ex-roommate's dog's account, and we are not on speaking terms, <laughs> so that was awkward. And then I also um, sent like a mass email reply to everyone in my graduating class. Oh, no. Which is like over 200 people, I want to say. And it says, I is tiki. <laughs> like I like spelled out a
0: message in my <laughs> pocket and sent. Yeah. So I... <laughs> I is tiki. I come in peace. I is tiki never got a response <laughs> from
2: anybody like no one responded i'm crying
0: that makes it so much worse yeah so oh no
2: yeah and i was not as good of friends with emily as I everyone's just now, kind of like so okay. i'm like panicking in the car like i can't believe i just did this like what do i do like do i respond to people and be like ignore or do i just ignore it myself and pretend it didn't happen i
0: would definitely send a follow-up and be like sorry you know you know, accident please best, do disregard
2: but I, I tend to <laughs> ignore and avoid these type of situations and just pretend like it didn't happen
0: so that's what i did
2: yeah so i did and it, i mean i guess it worked out because
0: it didn't happen yeah <laughs> uh, did it affect your friend another. making abilities with your cohort yeah she goes yes there is another answer it was uh, super embarrassing oh, you know what I have some embarrassing stories myself. Um, the one I really like to share has nothing to do with the soil or wetlands. Oh, kind of, kind of <laughs> wet-ish. Wet being a key. Oh no, wet being a key word. So, as I was, when I was learning, when I was first learning Italian, and um, I first got here, I was, my mom and my sister were visiting. I was, we were in uh, Lake Como. My sister, and my mom were visiting me, and I am still brushing up my Italian skills. They weren't that great yet, and I wanted to know. And we were at a restaurant and I wanted to ask the waiter like, "Hey, is there a place where we can go swim? Like, you know, is there any access points for swimming?" And uh, my absolute dumb, crusty ass said, un posto dove posso bagnarmi," thinking like, "I I I just asked for a place to, like bathe like in the water." And they go, and I what I really said was, "Is there a place where I can go wet myself?"
2: <laughs> oh no! Wait, what, what was the response
0: though? The response was a very wide-eyed, <laughs> wide-eyed, like, <laughs> one of these, like, points to self and looks around to make sure. And Did anyone else hear that kind of situation? Of course, and, you know, naturally I have a quite projecting voice as well, so the whole restaurant pretty much <laughs> heard what I had just said. And all the waiters were like, <laughs> uh, anyways, we don't need to, just so you know, embarrassing shit happens all the time. You know, Lexi made a weird comment yesterday. <laughs> Which one? When in Rome? <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Okay, so Americans, I'm going to say it here. So Americans have an expression, and it's basically when in Rome, and it means when you're in a place, yeah. you just kind of, like, go with the flow. You do the thing. Uh-huh. Well, I made a when in Rome reference to a group of Italians, and they just, they 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 just didn't like, get it. They're just like, they were like, you're in Florence. What in do you mean Rome? when in Rome? You're not in Rome. Yeah. So that yeah. was awkward. <laughs> Ari Ari pitied me so much that she clarified the situation to try and help but it, it, I did. it just didn't I think it, made it, it worse. just made it worse yeah yep.
2: I feel like whenever you have to clarify a joke it just it it never too late it, yeah yeah it's, it's past the point of making it funny
1: but hopefully what we talk about today will not be anything else too embarrassing for any of us and that being said we we talked a little bit about your degrees but could you tell us maybe like where you graduated from and when so we can kind of get a a timeline of your work experience versus your education. Sure.
2: So uh, I grad, my first degree is from University of Florida. I started in 2012, not to age myself too much. And I graduated in 2016, not really seeing or thinking what I wanted to do. I did an internship at the local zoo for a summer thinking like maybe I'll be a zookeeper, you know, or an animal ambassador or something, but it's super hard to get into that field and it sadly doesn't pay enough. So I was like, can't live off this. So then I went and did a post-bac program at USF starting in 2016. I was at the St. Pete campus, um, which is a beautiful campus. And it was nice because it was like smaller classes. So I got to know my professors a little more and they kind of like helped, I don't know, navigate me to take some classes that would probably be of interest to me. And then I graduated in 2018. I did an internship with um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, or no, sorry. Florida. Florida Fish and Wildlife, their research institute in St. Pete, um, doing like, I worked in their collections department, which is basically like, you know, these giant research boats go out to the Gulf or, you know, anywhere out sea, the they take in these like sea trawls and stuff of just different sea species and stuff they find and uh-huh. super not that interesting to be quite honest but i got to see a lot of cool creatures and i did a uh, research cruise once um came horribly seasick and decided that land
0: is for me so <laughs> land is for <laughs> me i think land is also for lexi just based on our beach day yesterday yeah uh, i get
1: a little unnerved on on the water no seasickness though just anxiety yeah,
2: it was uh it was right after Hurricane Harvey. So maybe the waves were just like I literally yeah. I remember it was just like up and down, like constant moving, no calmness, and I threw up everywhere on that boat. So I was like, Yeah, no, marine marine science is not for me. So then I took a contract job out in Texas, middle of nowhere, Texas, for bird and bat surveys around wind farms. Um, just to kind of collect field data cool. of like the fatality rates that wind farms um have on local bird and bat populations mm. it mostly was it was post-construction so i was going out on these wind farms after they were built kind of collect field data which basically means i was looking for dead animals for a year and taking photos and documenting how far away from the wind farm how it morbid was. <laughs> yeah so it was, how glamorous it was kind of gross but it was it was important research obviously to kind of yeah, figure out it is how to prevent these fatalities from happening right and, but after a year, I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So then I went and I worked for DEP. I did compliance for a year and a half. And then I switched over to permitting and was at DEP for a total of three years. So a year and a half in compliance, a half in permitting. And now I work for a different agency doing very similar things just for larger projects. Uh, so, so what got you interested in soil? At In my permitting job where I'm delineating wetlands, obviously... The three things that you look for to define a wetland are plants soils and hydrology um so soils mm-hmm. play a huge role in wetlands and identifying hydric soils is like part of my day-to-day job so mm-hmm. i just kind of started seeing like the different um soil hy- like hydric indicators and stuff you can see like redox concentrations um you know stripping organic coding, all this sort of things so that just kind of got me like interested in, you know, like how that happens, why it happens, mm-hmm. you know, what are the benefits of it and that sort of thing. And so um, now I'm doing a master's program in soil water science and a lot of my classes I'm foca- focusing on like urban soils and how to mm-hmm. kind of remediate them and kind of get some of those ecological functions back into them to kind of help.
0: That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: super important. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of avenues you can take to kind of remediate some of the urbanization that happens. And it also kind of shows you just like how useful urban soils can even be like after they're kind of altered in a way. Right.
0: And also I think, I think something that's really important here to remember as we continue this conversation and maybe our listeners get a little more insight into like the importance of soil is that even though soil can really hit a point where it seems like there's no return, there is a lot we can do to bring it back to that healthy um, healthy functioning, uh, component that we really, really need for all sorts of very, very necessary processes. So. Absolutely.
2: Yes. And I will say, you know, even if you leave like a, like you vacate a lot that has been altered by, by like mass grading or putting Mm -hmm. in, you know, like impermeable surface in certain areas or compacting the soils, you know, it takes a long time, but soils are pretty, I would say, um, what am I trying to say? Not resistant, resilient. Um, yes. Where they do kind of it takes a long time. Time is definitely a big process with it just comes to kind of creating soils. Um, mm-hmm. But they'll kind of bounce back on their own.
0: You know, they won't. Yeah.
2: They won't go back to what they were originally, but they'll kind of right turn into something different that can still provide some ecological functions for water quality, yeah. floodplain compensation. You know,
0: any something like that. All kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. And I think one thing that our our listeners may not, may need a little extra clarification on because I think we do have a few listeners who are just like interested in the environment and doing their part to, you know, be a part of the solution, but maybe they don't uh, unnecessarily know that there is a stark difference between dirt and soil. (laughs) And there's all the different kinds of soils and clays and um, the composition which makes something, which makes it soil and so nutrient dense and why that's so important for Mm -hmm. wetlands why that's so important for natural filtration systems why that's so important for agriculture why it's so important for as i said earlier carbon sequestration um and do you have any like very i don't know like just what are are some of the obvious indicators that's like healthy soil versus not and what we can do to make it healthy again
2: so naturally a soil has what They call a soil profile where it has like different horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, uh, a horizon should have its O horizon, A horizon, B horizon, C horizon. I believe is don't quote me on that. I'm still learning soils. People. You're good, okay? The... So if I'm correct or incorrect in those layers, like you know, listeners, let me know. But, um, O horizon is like the organic layer, so like. Mm-hmm what's used for fertilizer or like just where all the sort of top soil right yes where the microorganisms are where it's typically the most aerated and Mm -hmm. holds Mm -hmm. the most moisture so that's like a really important layer and typically for when development goes in and stuff that layer is the one that's kind of taken away because it's right a lot more squishy so it's not as like Mm -hmm. stable ground so that's Mm -hmm. usually just completely wiped away um so having that layer is super important or in ag fields and stuff they do tillage where they'll kind of Mm -hmm. mix the soils and stuff to kind of bring that organic layer back but it mixes with the next horizon below so having Mm -hmm. an untouched unaltered soil will have those soil horizons and those horizons kind of bring different functions where like Mm -hmm. i said the microorganisms um who kind of do like chemical reactions or live in that top layer and then A horizon, B horizon usually gets a little denser and that kind of helps with, you know, water retaining and like water filtration mm-hmm. and stuff where it'll mm-hmm. kind of remove, you know, any contaminations from the soil as it goes down into the groundwater. So, you know, these are just different things that soils can kind of like different functions soils kind of bring you know, for water quality, floodplain compensation. Healthy soil will obviously have those horizons.
1: Right. And undisturbed soil too.
2: Yes. Undisturbed soil. Yeah, I guess I should say that. So undisturbed soils will typically have those horizons. A healthy soil may not necessarily have every single one of those horizons or it'll be mixed. Um, So some of those functions will go away, Uh, but it can still kind of be remediated or restored by bringing in you know, organic layer and stuff Mm -hmm. from different sites to kind of create, help start creating those profiles. And then the soil will kind of take over and create those other horizons over time. But it'll take, you know, probably a few hundred years to get back to like a untouched, altered or untouched, um, unaltered soil profile. Mm -hmm. Thank
1: you for that clarification. So I don't think a lot of people realize the timeline. No, they don't. That we are considering here. When we talk about soil being in its natural state, and there's probably not a lot of places that are undisturbed unless you're looking at like a forest, like an old growth forest, which is kind of sad. And by kind of, I mean, that is sad. But maybe we should also clarify here what soil remediation is. So when you're talking about bringing back that organic layer or a site that has been disturbed, like what? What does soil remediation mean, really? So
2: kind of like the generic definition of soil remediation is the elimination of any contaminants from the soil through a different a lot of different um like chemical, physical, or biological means. There's a
0: lot of ways. I have actually at my old job, one of our one of our um services offered at the consulting firm was soil remediation. Like we would we would go out, we would collect Soil samples, but try and identify a plume. Yeah, and then depending on what contaminants were there, because depending on the contaminant, there's different ways to remediate soil. Or and maybe it's not even a contaminant and what why it needs remediation. Maybe it's just lost a lot of organic, like biodiversity. And there's another, you know, there's others all kinds of reasons that remediation needs to happen. And there's all there's different avenues to yeah yeah. I was
2: um doing a lot of research this weekend, and I mean, I knew I guess just like logically that there was a lot of different ways to do this but as i was looking into it there's like dozens like dozens of different all kinds. Ways you can remediate we used to do soil. some
0: weird stuff to get soil back we would pump something like that back into the soil so that it could is it either a soaks up all the shit and then since it's like an organic component it like kind of somehow re re incorporates it back into the soil in like a non-so-toxic way very strange there's like a lot of weird shit you can do
2: yeah yeah there's that sounds kind of like soil flushing but also like bioremediation combines where like yeah Yeah. you could use like a biological component where you like insert it into the soil and biological natural reactions will happen to kind of either stabilize the contaminants or turn them into like a non-contaminant
0: isotope of that and then there's also like excavation too where you literally just remove the shit from the from it and then you just try and mix back all the healthy soil in there and re-level it and things
2: but a lot of so there are some issues that can come up with soil remediation like excavation because if you remove all that contaminated soil from the site where are you going to put it you know yeah right the question of like are, yes you're helping this site but are you going to cause like yep. contaminants on an off-site location typically they take them to like landfills and stuff and you know certain landfills will take that type of material but not all landfills do so you have to then check to yeah. see if like your local landfill would take this contaminated soil yeah um and they have to pay for it to like get excavated and then we're you know trucked off-site which can get expensive so yeah there's definitely a lot of avenues extraction processes you can take they also have uh, remediation processes where you take that contaminated soil and you like put it through this machine to like kind of filter mm-hmm. like physically filter out all the like bigger contaminate contaminating particles sure and then you also like sure. mix it with a um what do they call it like a binding agent kind of solidify those contaminants together and like make like a bigger particles that can then get filtered out
1: um a, fl- a flocculus. yes
2: I don't know if it's called flacculates for soil. It might
1: be... S- yeah, it it's probably different because that's Similar concept. Liquids. Yeah.
2: yeah, so it's there's a lot of different options and avenues you can take. And like Ari was saying, it really depends on how it was contaminated, how long ago it was contaminated, and what type of contaminant is in the soil.
1: Exactly. I don't think people realize, too, because when we worked at DEP, if, if someone wanted to dredge out a boat slip, so, you know, I... Maybe you've got waterfront property and you've been parking your boat there. But over time, sediment will collect where you park your boat and then it gets hard to park your boat. So they would apply for an exemption request to dredge that area where the boat goes, the boat slip. But then it would become an issue of testing. A lot of people didn't want to submit testing to prove that there was enough flushing, that contaminants weren't sitting in that, Mm -hmm. what would be dredged sand i guess more than anything and then they occasionally would either take it to i believe a class a landfill like what nikki was saying earlier class one class yeah class one sorry thinking of different facilities a class (laughs) it's been a while a class (laughs) one landfill or it they sometimes would take it to a lot that is supposed to be permitted to accept dredged material (laughs) and uh That was always an interesting one, but I I don't think people realize the severity. I guess my point is people would come in for dredge permits very, very casually because for them, it's just, I'm just taking dirt from one place and putting it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't consider was the dirt that they were taking might actually have contaminants that can cause larger issues, much larger issues somewhere else. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Which could then affect another person's life. So- I feel like a good thing to maybe talk about now is how soil degradation can actually affect a person's day-to-day lived experience. Yes. Yeah.
2: So it's, um, you know, going off your example of dredging, you know, if you have soil that was contaminated that you dredged and you take it to a different location just to use it as like fill for, you know, just your lot in your backyard, go on and put in a, you know, a pool. Well, I guess not a pool because a pool you're like dredging out but like you want to put in like a back patio or something you have to level that land so you just use this fill material that you were found off site on this site but it's filled with like a contaminant of some kind and it'll leach into the soil of the lot you bring it to and it can you know affect the plant life in the in that area it can affect groundwater is a huge one especially groundwater where most of our fresh water comes from the aquifer um, so it can leach into groundwater, which then can just
0: disperse, you know, everywhere. everywhere. Once it hits the water table, you're kind of, you're in, you're some deep shit, for lack of a better word. I, yeah.
2: It becomes a much bigger problem. Much bigger problem. But, and it could also just affect, you know, water quality. It could affect the quality of the soils in that area and it, it'll affect like the microorganisms the biodiversity of any animal that's used there the plants um a lot of like native plants are very sensitive to like phosphorus levels and stuff in just the soil the water and stuff so it'll die off the native plant species and then exotics are typically a little bit more mm-hmm. flexible when it comes to just right chemical or water quality or anything like that like it, they're usually a little bit more uh, durable, I guess is a good word to say. Um, Resilient, maybe. Resilient. Yes. Thank you. I keep keep forgetting that word.
1: (laughs) We've talked about what soil remediation is. We've talked about the ways in which people might unintentionally cause the need for soil remediation. But I think we've maybe just kind of brushed over what can actually cause soil degradation. So can you talk a little bit about the different ways that soil degradation can occur okay so soils that need
2: to be remediated uh any type of soil pollution could be remediated it could be like agricultural it could be industrial it could be commercial pollution so like stormwater runoff pesticides microplastics anything that could kind of come off of like impermeable surfaces and stuff from just like roads and stuff and then get into runoff and then filter into soils and stuff through like right just groundwater penetration mm-hmm. which is like obviously a natural process and anything like that. Uh, another thing that could be remediated is like from mass grading sites or like putting in impermeable surface and then just kind of vacating that whether it be that the commercial development lost funding or whatever it is anything yeah. like that and then they just leave that lot. Obviously a lot of the ecological functions of that a natural soil would be able to do is been altered and fixed or un- or not fixed altered and um sort of prevented whether that be from like an impermeable concrete surface where it won't allow water pen water penetration so removing the concrete maybe like tillage tillage to kind of fluff up the soil like the top layers and stuff <laughs> to allow for more like air um pockets and stuff for right. chemical reactions to happen so you know any, even compacted soils, e- even though it doesn't have technically, like, a pollutant, which it probably does anyways, could also be remediated through, like, physical. Needs. Right, right, right.
1: That, yeah, I think we should talk about what happens if soil can't be remediated.
2: Okay. So I would say, this is just my opinion, pretty much any soil can be remediated. It's just figuring out if, like, what the amount of time and money would be required to kind of go about remediating uh-huh. it
0: and that so you have to evaluate like the cost benefit analysis right. before you decide whether it's like point of no return right. or not.
2: So um the EPA actually has a lot of programs for like really bad contaminated sites and it's called one of them is like the Superfund site right program. Say uh-huh. um there's actually like several in Florida alone. I did a search of this yesterday and there are 92 Superfund sites currently on the, what is it, national priorities list um, where they've gone out and 12 of them being, or I'm sorry, 11 of them being within the Tampa Bay area where I live and where you guys have kind of grown up or gone to college here. And some of them are like, like one of them's like 10 minutes from my office. Insane. So these Superfund sites are typically from like decades ago of like, back when water quality wasn't really monitored or regulated and stuff. And they were just doing a lot of, like, not environmentally safe things.
0: (laughs) They weren't paying attention. They weren't caring. They were doing what they needed to for for profit, for efficiency. um, So a
2: lot of these, like, just, you know, oil production sites and stuff are are a really big one. Phosphate mines. Phosphate mining. Even, like, dry cleaning places and stuff could have, like, become, like... Contaminant sites. Dry
0: cleaning is the worst. Uh, dry cleaners yeah. and PFAS contamination was like a hot topic yeah. while I so was working. in For
2: these super fun sites, EPA kind of goes out and does these site assessments and stuff where they'll kind of do soil and groundwater testing to kind of see what type of contaminant is there, the levels of it is, uh, that are there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it's safe for the public, especially like adjacent neighbors and stuff. Um, and if they aren't, they will put them on these like Big national priorities lists and it's just for like all nations and stuff and then they have like a fund budget like every year that they set aside to go and remediate these sites there are currently 11 like I said in Tampa that um, are kind of being joint funded by like Southwest Florida Water Management District, DEP, the county and the EPA all kind of work together to fund these remediation activities and stuff and some of them obviously it's really difficult to kind of point fingers at who the issue or who caused these contaminant sites and stuff. So that's why that fund is kind of set aside for this, for the just the government to kind of pay for. But some of these sites, they ha- have have they- been able to kind of just through his like figuring out the history of these sites, figure out you know what caused these pollution problems, and then they do have like they can do lawsuits and stuff where they kind of try and hold these companies accountable at some level. I don't know if they really have them pay everything, but there might be like some fines or, you know, obviously there have been a lot of like train spill issues in uh, the United States within like the last, what, six months? So I'm sure the EPA is working with those companies to kind of help fund the soil remediation activities that are needed. But yeah, so it's right. crazy. And you can find all of this on the EPA website, which is wild, but also I think really important to kind of figure out like what's going on in your your neighborhood and absolutely. where you work where you live. And it's interesting right. to kind of see how close these super fun sites are to just like day to day life.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I think I think we're we're getting into a really important kind of discussion here. Just naturally, the conversations kind of moved to the direction of like we see you've seen firsthand, and we can see firsthand for ourselves with this access to this data for free, how expensive and how um how uh, I guess impactful in a negative way contaminated soil is, and how and, and how expensive it is to clean up, and so we really need to get to this point where we understand that prevention is so much safer, better, healthier and cheaper than it is to make the mess and then clean it up later. I mean, it ends up being so much cheaper for a business or for an industry to take the precautions ahead of time and to make sure that they're doing the right regulations before they have to do this, you know, potentially million dollar cleanup that takes years. And who knows how, how, how expensive these really can get. I'm sure it even gets much more than that right
2: well and like you said like even time is a huge thing because some of these superfund sites i was looking at uh they went they started like the remediation activities in like the 90s and early 2000s
0: wasn't love love canal one of the first ones love canal in new york was one Mm -hmm. of the first superfunds and they still haven't cleaned that shit up yet no yeah and and that was way back and at least we're talking like early 90s i want to say i can't don't quote me on that i think so even after
2: the actual remediation activities are finished they have decades of monitoring that they have to do to kind of kind ensure and make sure that those uh contaminant levels are at like a safe level for the public and then it also can affect like zoning of that Mm -hmm. parcel yeah you know after the remediation if they've determined that the chemical levels are still too high for just typical residents and stuff they'll restrict the zoning where you can't have residential zoning in that area Um, Or, you know, they're just like really limiting on like how what you can do, like reuse that land for. Right. So it's it's definitely a, a long process and it can, you know, just one contaminant like oil spill or something can have decades of detrimental effect of that land and neighboring lands that I feel like aren't really it's not realized until too late Mm -hmm. so definitely proper practices are important
0: absolutely and in general would you would you say that it should be cheaper to do preventative measures than cleanup because I saw Lexi shaking her head and now I'm wondering Mm -hmm. like does it obviously there's some sort of benefit to just doing cleanup for an industry like obviously they do it for a reason there's some sort of like cost benefit analysis that they've done for themselves to just ignore the preventative measures and do it this way because somehow they're benefiting economically from it maybe it's efficiency i don't know mm-hmm. but is has it is has it been i don't know proven somehow do we know for sure that preventative measures are the at least the mo- there is economic incentive to do a preventative measure rather than clean up in my yeah. head i'm like yes obviously like it has to be cheaper to just not do that than like have um, to spend all the money and time to clean it up but
2: i I think it depends. So obviously, a lot of remediation activities are the person who actually contaminates the soil is typically w- long gone out of the picture before any remediation activities uh. sort of occur. So it's really hard to kind of find and sort of enforce payment for from the person who caused sure. these
0: these issues in the
2: first place. So. That person's probably like out of sight, out of mind. It's not my problem. It's up to the
0: government or the state to handle the funding for that at that point. So,
2: and obviously, it's cheaper for them, for them as the the producer to like not or the developer to not have these preventative measurements set in place. That being said, obviously there is state state and federal regulations that sort of try and implement these preventative measures, whether that be through best management practices water quality monitoring throughout construction. Mm-hmm. The permitting process in general. Yeah, permitting in general, um, sort of like limiting like what actual activities can actually occur. And right. And then, you know, proper disposal of any sort of like contaminated pollutant or things like that. Exactly. And then, you know, even if they obviously like construction, they have to have like a lot of oil tanks and stuff or fuel tanks. <laughs> um, so making sure that you have like proper uh, containment areas for those in case Mm -hmm. there is a spill they typically they have like what's called a stormwater pollution prevention plan every construction site does where it's basically like a a plan that's been set in place prior to construction starting talking about what what you will do if an oil spill happens or you know like how you're going to react to it and then you have to do the proper um, reporting and stuff to the state and also federal agencies in like 24 hours so they're aware that There was a spill in this area that needs to kind of potentially be monitored or if they see like a spike in water quality data and stuff they'll kind of have an idea of like why and they can kind of navigate back to that area to kind of see like how it's affected the neighboring areas so preventative is definitely the way to go yeah it's hard to regulate that i do think that there needs to be a lot more um statutes kind of set in place and maybe like a more extensive permitting process Um, I feel like a lot of the statutes that sort of regulate this were implemented in like the 70s, 80s, where we didn't really have the knowledge that we have today on those, like the effects that pollution has on water quality, soil fertility that we do today. So I feel like a lot of those statutes need to be sort of relooked at and maybe amplified or kind of more uh, specifically defined on like what a pollutant is and you know, mm-hmm. lot, like how you need to prevent them from getting into the water or the soils,
0: right? So that's a uh, definitely a topic of <laughs> kind of opening a lot. Well, of it, I, mean, I just think there's a there's a lot more there's a lot more that could be done to hold industry accountable. Yes, right there there is, but it's
1: it's harder than we think. Yes, and Nikki, I think you can t- attest to this, having worked for the regulator. In a capacity where we were trying to hold people responsible, responsible both before and after the issues yes. arise, it is very, very difficult to actually like basically uphold the statute and the administrative code to the best of our ability. And doesn't a lot a- of that come down to local government though? Uh, no. Well, it's. It's not, it's not necessarily that there's not the regulation in place. It's more so like people come, permitting is an honor system. So if I have a project that needs a permit, I'm the one that comes and gets the permit, ideally, but getting a permit, you have to pay for the application. You typically have to pay for some kind of engineer or specialist to help you put it together. And then you might even have to pay for some sort of like, based on the size of the project, like there might be fees in addition to the work you're already doing. So that's that's one deterrent. And two, if if people do something that did require permitting and they didn't get a permit or they are in violation of their permit, it then goes to compliance, which is still in the same like regular regulatory framework. Right. However, you have to have the compliance staff to be able to actually keep up with the issues, which is a very big problem in Florida. And you also need to have the the proper backing from your leadership, whether that be in your office or in your state in general, to kind of help you through that process. During the Rick Scott era, Florida was very business friendly. So they, they leaned into the gray area a bit more than other administrations. So that can also impact holding people responsible. But I think At the end of the day, it's it's all a game. Like the people that are are doing the pollution are playing the game of am I actually going to get caught? And is it cheaper for me to potentially deal with consequences or is it cheaper for me to uh, do it the right way? And unfortunately, it's typically cheaper for them to just potentially deal with consequences, especially because a lot of these compliance issues will end up in litigation, which will take years, sometimes decades. And at the end, if they do pay for something, it's going to be legal if they get found guilty, which proving your case is incredibly difficult, depending on the history of a site and the type of pollution. Yeah, I feel like I'm just I'm going down a rabbit hole, but regulation could be better.
2: Yes. And then, you know, like you're saying with the honor system and stuff, obviously people can get your permits and you have permit conditions on a piece of paper, but- You know, especially for when we were working at DEP, you know, we permitted a lot of single family activities and stuff. And there are millions of single family homes in the state of Florida alone. And there's, I think, what we had like maybe 15 people in our in compliance for the district staff. Yeah. So, you know, just thinking about like there's 15 compliance inspectors that are supposed to kind of I think they just pull randomly like past permits from like the last year to like go and do a compliance visit on but we permit a certain
1: percentage of them. Yeah.
2: So we permit like thousands of permits a year. So if they only do like 15% of those um, you know, like there, there's a lot of permits that are out there where they went through the proper channels, but you know, it's hard to make sure that they're following their permit conditions. Um, It's really just like an honor system. And the only way we can, we typically um report compliance is like neighbors will call in and kind of report and be like hey you know i saw someone dumping oil down a stormwater drain wow or you know things like that so but if they're if your neighbor doesn't report you you know it's it's really hard for the state to kind of catch on if of that everybody is doing that
0: not ideal that yeah. um, no that system so, is not ideal i, di- I think we can all agree there are definitely ways that this could be better listeners
2: be on the lookout be eyes and ears that <laughs> help
0: Big brother, be big brother. <laughs>
2: so, um, you know, that's like that's another issue too. It's just yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard. And and it you is you know not even just to say that people are doing that intentionally. You know, there are a lot of people that it's just a lack of education. Just don't know.
0: They yeah, just don't
2: know like what they're doing can be really detrimental to themselves, to the public, just to soil in general. water. Right. So I just had a friend who messaged me yesterday uh, pictures of someone who put up a fence like through a mangrove fringe on their property and obviously like the way they did it I could tell that it was not permitted um and he was like how do I report this and I was and so I like told him like how he has to report it and the county he was in like mangroves mangrove regulations have been uh, delegated to the county instead of the state so I was like oh you have to call your, your, your county or like you know this on the other and he was like how do I know that it's actually going to happen and I was like I don't know like that's it's up to the county to figure out how they're going to enforce that, if they're going to enforce it, or if they're just mm. going to require
0: a permit. Like it's, it, it, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of things that could be better about the regulation and um, absolutely enforcement and checkups. I mean, having someone, you know, have some kind of monitoring system in place that's better than having your neighbor call in.
2: Yeah, and like Lexi was saying, you know, with the changes in just state. Uh, officials kind of the mindset and the approach that state agencies have have changed throughout the years so like before rick scott yeah. dp was like a heavily heavily enforced like enforcement sort of task force like they would go out and they would issue fines or they would mm-hmm. they, they were a lot more reactive than they are now whereas now they are they they still kind of follow through with those cases and stuff, but a lot of them are just kind of like, oh, it's so minimal. Or, it's just it's just one small single family lot. Right. The one small single family lot may not have a detrimental effect on the entire environment, but if you have one single family lot after one another single family lot, you know, just kind of building on top of each other, it can adds have up a big overall cumulative right. impact.
0: So right, it's, tricky. it's definitely
2: a lot of red tape that has to yeah. kind of get worked through.
0: But I have I have a lot of faith in the potential progress that could be made here. I think so. Yeah, I think a lot of people are definitely more
1: aware now and very much more conscious. That's, that's something that I've noticed, like working um, in the regulatory field, it, it definitely seemed like, especially our cohort of younger people working there, we definitely were more concerned about these things. We were thinking about mm-hmm. it from a holistic standpoint and not so like, oh, it's just one single family home. You know, we're thinking about the accumulation of all of these single family homes and their impact. But I do think, Nikki, if you could provide maybe some hopeful insight on if your studies and experience have focused on prevention when it comes to, to like soil degradation or... Anything to to that regard in terms of, like, doing things better for the future?
2: I think, yes, because we're kind of, I think, getting to a point where we're starting to realize that development's going to happen, you know, regardless of Mm -hmm. regulations or, you know, the general public's kind of thought process and stuff. It's just a matter of, like, where is this development going to occur? Are they going to develop an untouched piece of land or are they going to go and develop like sort of a previously developed land that's just kind of sitting there where nothing's happening on it. Obviously, developing an untouched piece of land is going to be cheaper from like a cost perspective. But the general public's kind of catching on that it's going to have more of an environmental detrimental impact to just like wildlife corridors or, you know, floodplain compensation, impacting wetlands, anything like that, where the public's wanting to kind of lessen that so I think the mindset is shifting from developing untouched land to developing previously developed land that's vacant and you know not really being used so I do see I have seen kind of like a like from the articles and stuff I've had to read for my classes and stuff I do see kind of a more focus on redeveloping land Mm -hmm. than developing untouched land from that's my studies so it's kind of right like a, I guess a more like rose-colored glasses perspective narrow mm-hmm. perspective but then for like my regulatory job I do see a lot of like ag lands being developed into you know like commercial developments right large residential mm-hmm. developments that sort of thing which I think is better than like going through and you know just completely like wiping out a forested system that's been untouched so obviously ag lands have been altered soils regardless so it's Right. Not necessarily the worst thing, but it does create more soil compaction. It does increase the amount of like impermeable surface in, you know, that large area. So it it, it still can have some impacts right. on uh, ecological functions that ag fields still can kind of provide that, right. you know, residential developed areas typically don't. It's kind of like yes and no. It yeah. is it is yeah. definitely cheaper to develop an ag field than it is to develop like you know a forested wetland wetland, but it's not as easy to develop a lot that has like a a abandoned building on it because you have to like remove the building you have to remove the concrete you have to like you know remove what's already there and possibly retreat the soils or you know put in like a stormwater system or something like that that is going to take more money and time than just developing an ag field or a forested wetland mm-hmm. wood, so and it's uh, you know, I think it's give or take, but um, I am hopeful that we're shifting more towards developing already developed land than developing yeah. untouched land. There very are very also good. for kind of like preventative issues. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of states, like uh, Florida specifically, has like brownfield site funds and stuff where mm-hmm. um.
0: It's like a transformative you, sort of project, right? Like uh, old, uh, dis- like um, abandoned land projects, and you make it into something, um, something yeah. different. So you're not having to re de- like, develop new land, but repurpose yeah. old land. Exactly. And they have Very incentives cool. and
2: stuff. So like, if somebody wants to develop a brownfield site, the the state will kind of give them some funding or some incentive to doing that. So they're trying to kind mm-hmm. of push mm-hmm. these developers to develop brownfield sites more than like untouched land. Right. You know, but I think it's still not necessarily a very well-known sort of program out there and then yeah. also they have to kind of do like a pros and cons list of like yeah. what's yep. going to be most cost effective for them because that's that's what their concern is right I think it's yeah it's it's hopeful there are there are incentives and programs out there Great. to kind of push people to this and I think it's just the beginning and it's just kind of b- going to continue building so um sure you know we'll, we'll see where it goes in the future I'm very hopeful. (laughs) Me too. I will say our generation and younger generations, I think, see the importance of the environment and the natural ecological functions that we we get from it and wanting right. to preserve it.
0: So we'll see. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've got to run. We really, really appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about the importance of soil. Yeah. I think we're going to have to
1: have you back to uh, talk yeah. to us about some wetlands because if there's one thing we love talking about, it is wetlands. 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 Yes. I love wetlands. I
2: love, you know, shoreline. Dirt. I love dirt all dirt, no muck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A Just another throwback. Before we totally sign off, please remember to like, follow, review, subscribe, do all of the things. Send this to a friend if you feel like they're interested in learning a little bit about soils. If they're into development, maybe they're a real estate agent. I don't know. Maybe they're thinking about building their first home or maybe they're thinking about buying some property. That might be helpful to know this stuff. Aside from that, you can follow us on Instagram at hotel earth podcast. You can follow us on TikTok at Hotel Earth Pod. You can send us an email at hotelearthpodcast
0: at gmail.com. And I think that's all. We yeah. definitely will be having her on again to talk more about soil. But I guess Lex and I should, should wrap this up and sign off. Yes. Ciao for yeah. now. We will definitely be having Nikki on at a later date to discuss further wetland soil, yeah. etc. With love to come back. Bye, guys. Ciao. Right. Thank you, Bye, Nikki. Guys. Ciao. Thank you, Nikki. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye.